0: In 1520, the Mayflower ship set sail from England. Ever heard of that before, right? Came to the Americas. About half of the 102 passengers were Protestant dissidents, known as Puritans. They're also called pilgrims. They fled to the Americas to practice their faith apart from the restrictions that were being imposed upon them from the Church of England. They landed in Massachusetts, they founded a colony, and we're all pretty familiar with how that colony went on to have a tremendous impact for American history. What you may not know is that for these pilgrims, they saw their journey as a reenactment of the biblical story of Exodus. One writer says about them, quote, the early pilgrims referred to King James I as the modern day Pharaoh, their departure from England as the modern day Exodus, the sailing across the Atlantic Ocean as the modern day parting of the sea, and the New World as the New Canaan and the New Israel. So these pilgrims were heavily indebted to the book of Exodus. And they're not alone. Down through the centuries, many groups have been captivated and guided by the Exodus. It is one of the most memorable and formative stories in all of human history. And it is true. And it is a crucial part of the Bible that we should understand well and draw hope from in our own personal lives. So, Today we're going to come to this event, the Exodus itself, where we derive the name of the book, Exodus. The foundational event when God delivers his people from their bondage in Egypt and they part the Red Sea and cross over. Wow, what a moment that was. So let me invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, we're in the fourth message in a series on the book of Exodus. I'm going to cover two more topics in Exodus, and then we're going to look at what is found in Exodus chapter 20, the the famous Ten Commandments after that. So far, we've seen Israel was living in Egypt after they fled there to escape a great famine in Canaan. They prospered there for a long time, but eventually a pharaoh rose to power. He did not like them, and he oppressed them. He enslaved them. He afflicted them. In the midst of this, a baby boy named Moses was born, and his mother made sure that he was raised in the household of pharaoh at the age of 40. Moses was going out among the Israelites and he saw one of them being beaten by an Egyptian. Moses intervened, killed the Egyptian, and then fled to Midian for 40 years. Well, in Exodus 3, God met Moses in the burning bush and told him that he wanted Moses to deliver the people of Israel. Moses goes back to Egypt, goes to the Pharaoh, shares that message was Pharaoh very happy about that? He did not embrace that idea. He wasn't very warm to that idea. And so he kept adding to their burdens. Well, eventually, uh, Moses says, look, ten plagues are going to come upon you. And they did. We saw last time how the tenth plague came on the land of Egypt. And it was the destruction of the firstborn there. And finally, after all of these plagues, this plague changed Pharaoh's mind ...to release Israel. We saw that contained within that plague... ...was the festival called what? Passover. Where the Lord passed over the houses... ...that had the Passover lamb's blood... ...spread on their doorposts. We also saw how Jesus... ...on the night before his crucifixion... ...as he celebrated the the what meal? The Passover meal... He took that meal and he transformed it to the Lord's Supper where it now commemorates what he did on our behalf. So that's a little bit of a recap bringing us to where we are today. As today, again, we're going to see the exodus itself as Israel leaves Egypt and crosses the Red Sea. Everybody ready to go? All right. Got the sandals on, ready to cross through. The first part is Pharaoh pursues Israel. Pharaoh pursues Israel. Let's read the first four verses together. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi hi between Migdal and the sea, in front of baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So the Lord commands Israel to camp in front of the sea. Why? Why would they do that? Well, Israel moves their camp in front of the sea. And it appears that they're trapped, right? They have nowhere to go. The sea is their boundary. They appear to be trapped, but what the Lord is actually doing is that he is trapping Egypt. He is orchestrating events to bring about the downfall of Pharaoh. And as it says there, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart to want to pursue Israel. If you remember last time, we discussed this whole dynamic about the Lord and Pharaoh and Pharaoh's heart and how it keeps getting hardened. You guys remember that two weeks ago? In each of the ten plagues, it talks about Pharaoh's heart, 21 times total. And in a nutshell, what we saw there is that in the beginning of the plagues, primarily it is Pharaoh that hardens his heart. Moses keeps saying, let our people go. Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart, hardening his heart. Then toward the end of the plagues, it is the Lord who hardens Pharaoh's heart, almost as if he is determined to bring this to pass, okay? God is going to judge Pharaoh and demonstrate his glory, power, and justice. He is in the driver's seat, not Pharaoh. Let's read verses 5 to 9 together. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi Hareth in front of Baal Zephon. So, Pharaoh, what does he do here? He changes his mind. Now he wants to bring Israel back and also his servants want to bring Israel back. They were probably thinking, oh, no, we're going to have to be the one to do the hard work now. Right. So, yeah, Pharaoh, go get them, go get them. (laughs) Bring them all back here. okay? And so Pharaoh sends out his army. What does it say there? 600 of his chosen chariots and other chariots as well. Just so you have in your mind's eye, what did this look like? I mean, this was, the, this was the military craft back in the day. A chariot would have had two wheels, two horses, and two people in the chariot. One would have been the shield bearer. The other guy was the driver, okay? And he would have pulled up close to the enemy and then would have gotten out arrows to try to shoot at them or hit them with javelins and swords, okay? So they're now in hot pursuit. They're going to chase down Israel, Let's get to the second part. The Lord promises deliverance. The Lord promises deliverance. Let's read verses 10 to 14 together. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? "'What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? "'Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? "'Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? "'For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians "'than to die in the wilderness. "'And Moses said to the people, "'Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, "'which he will work for you today. "'For the Egyptians whom you see today, "'you shall never see again.'" The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So we see here, immediately, Israel grumbles against the Lord. This is amazing, isn't it? I mean, they just saw these incredible miracles, and they quickly turn to grumbling against the Lord let that be a strong warning for us. It is such a temptation to grumble even after God does amazing things in our lives. But both the Old Testament and the New Testament categorically warn against grumbling against God. For example, Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, last week, if I heard correctly, Pastor Joe said he wanted to meddle a little bit. So now I'm just following his lead here and meddling a little bit. Can I ask you a blunt question, rhetorical question? Are you a negative, grumbling person? Negative, grumbling person. Maybe there's a significant trial in your life that just keeps going on and you just grumble about it to God all the time. Or maybe it's not one big trial, but you just have a general kind of complaining Negative, grumbling spirit. It could be about anything. And you're going to grumble about it. We need to understand that when we grumble, we are robbing God of his glory. And we are hurting our testimony as Christians. Yes, we should lament and pour out our hearts to God like we see in the Psalms when our hearts are broken. But of all people, we should be people that are characterized by joy and hope. Amen. A Christian, or a grumbling Christian, in my mind, is basically an oxymoron. You say, how do we fight a grumbling spirit? We need to focus on what God has done for us. What God has done for us. Israel needed to remember what God had just done in their midst. Instead, they're focused on their life back in Egypt when they were slaves. Well, We have that capacity. We can have God do wonderful things in our midst, and yet we focus on something that is wrong in our lives. And so as the church, what do we need to focus on? We need to focus on Christ and what he has done for us to remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus and how he gives us the promise of eternal life, peace with God now, and all of the abundant blessings that we take in like raindrops on a rainy day, and we lose sight of them because our foot stepped in a puddle. Let it be known, church, this is a choice that you and I make. God never forces us to grumble, does he? We decide to focus on our frustrations instead on the incredible blessings that God has given us in our lives. So my prayer is that this message might hit home with some hearts today about a need to do a paradigm shift about a grumbling spirit, whether it's a general just kind of grumbling, complaining spirit or something right now that you're going through. And right now you just keep grumbling, complaining about to God to change today, give it over to God to repent of that grumbling spirit and say, I'm going to focus on all the things that God has done in my life. Amen? Amen. Let's keep reading. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So the Lord promises to part the sea. And not only to part the sea... To do so on dry ground. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Dry ground. Not only that. I mean, he's telling them ahead of time. And Egypt is going to pursue them and he is going to gain, gain glory over them. He doesn't specify exactly how he's going to do that. Let's see what he does in chapter in, in part three here. Where the Lord delivers Israel. The Lord delivers Israel. Verses 19 to 24. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, and coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Egyptian forces and, and, threw, and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptian." So we see the Lord bring about this deliverance in several stages to begin the angel of God and the pillar of God kind of stand as a barrier between Israel and the house of Egypt. And so for now, Israel had no more concerns about Egypt attacking them, though they looked like they were penned against the sea. And then next, we we have the the famous image in our minds, right? Where Moses takes the staff and he parts the Red Sea so that Israel passes through, yes, on dry ground. I mean, can you imagine trying to put yourself in their sandals for that moment when they're walking through this body of water and there is a wall of water around them? Wow. Wow. What an amazing moment. Amen? Amen. What an amazing moment. I saw a funny cartoon this week. Talked about what would the Red Sea parting be like if it happened today. And it had people going along with Moses. And they had their cell phones out. (laughs) (laughs) And they're stopping for group pictures. And they're taking pictures along the way and so forth. I think Moses, he has to be really glad that he didn't have to deal with that, right? They were ready to go. (laughs) As for Egypt, they pursue Israel into the waters. But the Lord throws their army into a panic. And they decide midstream to turn around. I think if they had kept going, they probably would have averted destruction. But they decided in the midst of their panic to turn around. Let's read the conclusion of this chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. So the Lord brings the waters back over the Egyptians and destroys the army. By the way, it does not say what happened to Pharaoh in this incident. But it is very possible that after being in the Red Sea, that he ended up marooned. (laughs) One person got that. I know that was dry (laughs) as the ground they passed through. But seriously. (laughs) Seriously. It's fascinating, the archaeological evidence that talks about how Pharaoh and his army did experience a great decimation. I've mentioned before um, an archaeologist named Titus Kennedy. He recently wrote a book called Unearthing the Bible that I mentioned, right? In an interview with Kennedy, he talks about how Previously, Egypt's army was very powerful. The previous pharaoh went on 17 military campaigns where they would go out and they would just wipe out people and bring back captives and so forth. Now when we come to the pharaoh, which he believes is Amenhotep II, the pharaoh of the Exodus, he comes to power in 1450 B.C. He conducts one raid before the Exodus, And then after the Exodus, he conducts a second raid. He talks about trying to go to Canaan and bring back slaves, which kind of makes sense, right? He just lost all of his slave force, and so he was trying to bring them back. But what's even more intriguing above all of that is that there's about a hundred-year window after the Exodus occurs where Egypt's army has very little military activity. Are you connecting the dots there? They went from this regional superpower to basically we're not doing anything with our military. Something happened that devastated the Egyptian military power. Any guesses what that might be? The Red Sea catastrophe. That's what happened. That's what happened. Meanwhile, as we said here, Israel safely passes through the Red Sea and they witness the Egyptian army washed up on the seashore and as the passage closes it says how Israel feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. What an event. And we close here by pointing out three things about this exodus. Three things. First is the exodus in Israel. When Israel thought about its identity, thought about its history. It always went back to Exodus. It was absolutely central to who it was. Look at their laws. Look at even their calendar. Everything was going back to Exodus. We're going to see in the Ten Commandments in a little bit. The very first, uh, there's a prologue right before we get into the Ten Commandments. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, As Old Testament history rolls on, the different writers, the prophets, the Psalms, they always go back to what happened here, this Exodus event. And and the prophets, they would encourage Israel, live in light of what God has done for you with the Exodus. But we know they didn't, did they? And God said, I'm going to send you out into exile one day. But I'm going to bring you back. And it's going to be like a second Exodus. Exodus. For example, it says in Jeremiah 7 to 8, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives who brought you up out of the people of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives who brought you up and led you out of the... Let me say that again. But as the Lord lives, who brought, brought, up, brought you up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then sh- they shall dwell in their land. He's basically saying, look, you're going to come back, and it's going to be a second exodus. And we know that God did that, didn't he? It's amazing. He said, you're going to be in exile. One day I'm going to bring you back, and it's going to be like a sex- second exodus. But God wasn't done, was he? That's the second point. This gets to the Exodus and Jesus, because God had a greater Exodus in mind. Jesus saw his mission, if you will, as a greater Exodus. You say, where do do you see that, Pastor? In Luke chapter 9, Jesus has a fascinating time with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. He goes up there, and he shows his divine glory. He never does this any other time during his ministry. He shows it to those three three individuals. And while they're up there, there's a fascinating conversation that takes place. It says, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Jesus is sitting there talking with Moses and Elijah about his departure that he was going to do in Jerusalem. Now, in the Greek language there, the word departure is the word exodus. Exodus. So Jesus is about to accomplish his exodus there in Jerusalem by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension. In other words, Moses had led Israel out of bondage to Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. You see that? Jesus was going to lead the church through the wilderness of the world and bring them to the ultimate promised land, the new creation. That's what Jesus was about, a greater exodus. What Moses foreshadowed, Jesus was now fulfilling as the greater Moses, the greater Exodus. And this is what we celebrate, right, when we come into church, that Jesus has accomplished this on our behalf, bringing about redemption that will last for all of eternity. Have you embraced that? That's what our hope is in this morning. So the Exodus is is this completely epic foundational paradigm for the church and for Israel. That's the main point. However, I do also believe that it's right to see the exodus on a personal level. On a personal level. That's my third point the exodus in you. God delivers on a personal level. In our lives, sometimes we're in the midst of situations where there seems to be no way out. It might be finances, it might be employment, it might be relationships, other tough circumstances. We need to remember that it's the same God. And it is a God who delivers. Psalm 34 is helpful here. You don't need to turn to it. The context of the psalm is David was on the run from King Saul, fleeing from him. David decides to go in exile to the Philistines, the enemies of Israel. He does so. And he survives. And he writes Psalm 34 in that light. First eight verses say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. David experienced deliverance by the Lord. Notice how David says the angel of the Lord encamps around. Those who fear him. We saw the angelic presence, didn't we? Back in Exodus, right? When they were a a barrier between them and Egypt. But now we see it here. This divine and angelic presence. Not only there with Exodus in the Red Sea. But at the personal level. God takes or God delivers people who take refuge in him. As it said in Exodus 14, we don't have to fight. The battle belongs to the Lord. He can part the sea when we seem to be trapped. Past couple of days I reflected on my life and how God has brought various means of deliverance when there seemed to be no way out. Let me share about one time. My wife and I were new, or we were at seminary, newlyweds, and we had just purchased a used car the year before. And I think at the time, it was one of the most, if not the most reliable car on the market a Honda Accord. Well, we decided we were going to go ahead and sell the car because our ti- finances were extremely tight, and to live off of one car. Right when we decided to sell the car, it started acting up. (laughs) Sometimes to the point that you could not get the car to start. No one could figure out why. We took it to mechanics and dealerships or whatever. No one could figure it out. Now, we were trying to sell the car for $5,000. I believe that's what we had left on the car note. I remember a customer came over to check out the car. And so I went out to the car with him, gave him the key, sat in the passenger seat. He tried to start the car, and it wouldn't start. Now that is flat out humiliating. <laughs> <laughs> that is just pure humiliation. He actually called back later and said, I'll give you something like $3,500, and he said, no, I won't, I won't go that low. Well, time went on, And we had no buyers. It was awful. Car has issues. We really needed the money. I was busy. But you know if you're trying to sell something, you got to keep that thing clean and vacuumed all the time. So this situation was discouraging. It was stressful. And there seemed to be no hope in sight. Out of the blue, we get a call from a young guy who was a UPS pilot said he was interested in buying the car. Now, as a Christian, I knew that I needed to tell him the full story about the car. I did. And he was completely unfazed. Still wanted to buy it for $5,000. And the car started. I couldn't believe it. What an incredible relief. God can make a way. Not every time, but He can part the sea when we entrust the battle to Him. Psalm 34 8 again says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, thank you so much for your word here this morning. We do just marvel, marvel, marvel at this story of the Exodus, Lord. Your power, your might, and your care for your people. Lord, you are just simply amazing. Lord, we thank you for the greater exodus that Jesus came to accomplish. As mighty and powerful as that story was, Jesus brought about a greater deliverance from the bondage of sin through the wilderness of the world and to the final promised land, the new creation. Lord, my prayer is for someone here today who has never given their lives to Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. They would see why are they waiting And today they would take up the cross and follow you, bowing their knees and saying, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I trust you. And my faith is going to lead to me following you wherever it leads. Lord Jesus, may you bring that to pass. And Lord, I pray for, as we said here at the close, the exodus and you, different situations that we might be working through in our own hearts and minds, God, may you work here in our midst so that we have stories to tell each other about how you have worked and to encourage us when we are in the midst of those wilderness wanderings and when we're tempted to grumble, may we be reminded of who you are and your faithfulness to your promises. We thank you so much and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Amen.